Let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Today, God willing, we will finish the chapter. My goodness, we have like one chapter left of the Gospel of, jo- uh, of John, of Luke. It's crazy. We have preached through every verse almost of the Gospel of Luke. Now, I would say that's a big thing, but we've preached through the Gospel of, of Mark. We've preached through the, the letter of Romans. We've preached through the pastoral epistles. So, you know, we're preaching through other things. So, yeah, but I think it's a great achievement to be able to say that we have preached verse for verse, word for word, line for line through the entire book, through the entire gospel. And we have seen Christ. We have walked with him. We know him better because of how he has presented himself in the scriptures. And that is our great ambition, that we would know Jesus better, not know about him. Sadly, too many of us know about Jesus. We've heard stories about him or myths and fables. People will tell us of their imaginary adventures with the Spirit. But we desire to know Christ as he has revealed himself through the Scriptures. We want to feel how it felt when he was betrayed. We want to feel the sadness we, we want to feel the exhilaration of his resurrection. The scriptures were written that we might learn from them, that we might know God, that we might grow in relationship to him. And so that is why we walk slowly through the scriptures. And it is wonderful to say that, that uh, yet again we can take off another book of, this, of the scriptures and begin another adventure soon. So let me read to you from... Chapter 23, we'll begin verse 44 to the end. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this, this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd came together to that sight, seeing what had been done. They beat their breasts and returned But all of his, that is Jesus' acquaintances, the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. When he had took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of rock, where no one had been laid before. That day was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee 
followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Amen. Here we have the world's triumph. They think that they have won. Their plans and their schemes have been fulfilled. If we were to look with human eyes, without knowing the end of the story, we would think that the bad guys have won. They got their way. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think to myself, why is it evil men prosper? Why do... Wicked governments get away with things. I mean, if you've been following the last two years of American drama and politics, and you think to yourself, how do these people get away with what they've done? How can they manipulate the system? And everybody knows. Everybody sees it. It's clear as day. And yet there's no accountability. They get away with it. And sometimes I... I, I, I I cringe inside me and I say, oh God, oh God, come. What unrighteous world we live in. Now we see the unrighteous events of world politics in America, here in Europe, here in Finland, and all the confusion and difficulties there are with with the, the virus. I can't even say what it's called or we'll blank from YouTube or wherever else. And we think of all the, all the terrible things that are going on and sometimes it can be overwhelming. But all of that pales in comparison to what was done to Jesus. Because in the death of Jesus, the world, the flesh, the devil thought they had triumphed. They achieved their goals. I imagine that the Pharisees, the chief priests, the rulers, they went home thinking, Whoa! Yes, we've got it done. That's the end of that. It can be very burdensome, wearying, tiresome. If we were just to look with human eyes, if we were just to consider that bad people get away with stuff, do you know there's no accountability? These people murder Jesus And yet we're never told that one of them was taken to court. We're never told that one of them was tried for murder. They got away with the murder. In plain open sight, everyone knew about it. It was a conspiracy of mammoth proportions. They murdered Jesus publicly and got away with it. And humanly speaking, we can look at this. Look at the circumstances of the world and dismay. But beloved, there is a deeper truth at work here. You see, all these men, though they thought that they were working according to their own plans and purposes, they were doing everything that they wanted in accordance with their own will. The truth is that they were all working according to the the providence of God. God is moving and working in the background. He is manipulating and dictating the circumstances of life in order to bring about His purposes and plans. 
Though we look with human eyes and do not understand, and our heart bemoans and wails and grieves because of what is happening to Jesus, we must look with biblical eyes, with eyes full of faith, eyes that know that God is sovereign, even in the death of Jesus. And God is working out all these things. Again, we, we can read this and so often we just speed bump over it. It, it. it doesn't have effect or grip or insight into our hearts or minds. We know the story about Jesus. We read it and we kind of move on. And no longer does it affect us. No longer are we grieved or shocked. We're so desensitized, so Christianized. That we no longer see the unrighteousness. We no longer feel it. We're so used to the injustices of life. What can you do? We just get on with life. There's no reaction in us anymore. We're desensitized. Our consciences are... are just don't care. There, there are other things. Children, lives, wives, husbands, work, school, life gets on the way. We read this and we just bump over it. We know what's coming next. Well, Jesus comes back together. It's a whoa. But in the circumstances of our own lives, this was the greatest tragedy that Jesus ever experienced. This was the Greatest tragedy that his followers had ever experienced. Think of the women who were following him. And we know that that's a reference to Jesus' mother. In the Gospel of John, we are told that Jesus looks to John the Apostle and says, Man, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. He arranges that John should look after his mother for the rest of his life. And John does that. Jesus' mother is there watching the crucifixion, watching the betrayal, watching the unjust murder of her son. And she's not thinking to herself, well, this is all God's plan. This is all good. This is all... Well, just wait and see. The tragedy, the pain, the loss. This is her baby. Even though he's a full-grown man. This is her baby. And he's being so horribly treated. Betrayed, murdered. Here she is experiencing this terrible tragedy. Your beloved, even in the midst of her pain, God is moving. God even is caring for her in the midst of this tragedy. Jesus is caring for her in the midst of this tragedy. Ensuring that there is someone there to comfort her, to watch over, to care for her. To be there for her. But even more so than that. In today's message, we're told of this man, Joseph. Joseph from Arimathea. We don't know anything about him. He was a council member, a member of the Sanhedrin. But all we know is what is written in the Gospels about him. And it doesn't tell us much. Someone I read this week said that this was a man who was well known in Israel. Like Nicodemus. 
We're told in the Gospel of John in chapter 19 that it was both Joseph and Nicodemus who went to claim the body of Jesus. They had been secret disciples of God, of Christ. They were, the Bible says here, just and righteous men. It tells us that they had not given their consent to the decision or the deed. They were not present when the conspiracy against Jesus was made. It's a lesson to us that God has his people. Even though you and I might not see, we might think we're of even. What's that in English? Uh, abandoned. Thank you, Daniel. Abandoned and given up. Yet God has his people in places we don't know or expect. This man, Joseph, he went to Pilate and petitioned Pilate for the body of Jesus, which would have been a very dangerous act for him to do. He's publicly acknowledging that Jesus was a just and right man whom he believed in. And by doing so, he is isolating himself from the rest of the majority of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jerusalem and of Israel. He is saying that they were unjust, incorrect in their judgment, and he's setting himself up as their enemy, at least in their minds. He is going to Pilate, and in doing so, he is saying to Pilate, this was an innocent man whom you convicted and had murdered. It's very interesting that God had put this man in place for the right time, for the right purpose. He had been a secret follower of Christ. Not public, because it tells us in the 19th chapter of John, for fear of the Jews. He was afraid of what people would say. He was afraid of the consequences of what would happen if people knew that he was a believer in Jesus. Yet in Jesus' darkest point, in the pinnacle of the tragedy, he steps forward and confesses his faith. I cannot say that he was unafraid. I imagine he was. I cannot say that he did it ignorantly, not knowing the consequences, because I think he probably did. But he stepped forward. God had his people in place. Now we're told that he, he was from the city or the town. Hard to know because the Jewish word, the, the Greek word for town is cities, village, towns, all the same. From the place called Arimathea, we don't know where that was, but it was a city of the Jews, a town of Jews. He had moved from wherever he was living to Jerusalem. He had moved city in order that he might live in Jerusalem. We're told that he was a councilman. It was very hard to become a member of the Sanhedrin. You had to be exceedingly wealthy to become a member of the Sanhedrin. So this is not just some ordinary man. This is a high-powered businessman 
who had moved from whatever city he was living in to the most expensive city in all of Israel, Jerusalem. He had gained a place of authority in the city and over the nation. We're told that he had his own tomb in Jerusalem. It was a new tomb. A new tomb. That's hard for me to say. Carved out of rock. A very expensive thing. Very expensive purchase. And God had his people prepared and in place at the time. I think this was not only to fulfill scripture, but as an act of kindness, an act of compassion to Jesus' mother and followers. As they're watching and seeing what's happening, this man who had been a secret follower of Jesus Christ takes on the body, binds it, as a sign of respect and preparation for burial, and deposits Jesus' body in a new tomb stone. I'm sure that was a sense of relief and comfort to his mum, because otherwise they would have taken the body down and thrown it in the dump. They, were, they had a valley, we all know the, the valley of Guiana, a valley where they burnt all the rubbish, all the corpses, all, all, the, all the... A valley, uh, uh, we would say like a, a cul-de-sac basically, uh, a ravine where they would throw all the rubbish. All the rubbish of the city would be deposited in that. And they had people who were employed, these unclean, untouchable people who were employed to burn the rubbish. And every day and every night there would be clouds billowing from that valley. Indeed, Jesus likens hell to that valley. It was a place of disgustingness. The corpses were there. They would burn their corpses. There were all the garbage and filth was gathered there and they burnt it. And have you, have you ever been to a landfill, a large dump, not Ekoros, which is really nice and clean and finished and I love it. But if you ever go to, like, when we were in Uganda, when Sarah and I were in Uganda many, many years ago in Africa, we were in Kampala, the city, and we went to work with the uh, homeless people in the homeless camps. And the homeless camp was actually situated at the, the city dump. Kampala, I think, has like five, six million people. And all the rubbish is, is just thrown into a big ravine, like a big hole in the ground. You just throw the rubbish into it. And there are people living there. Not just one or two, but thousands of people. And they've built little houses for themselves inside this rubbish dump. And every day the lorries come and they throw out all the rubbish. And people pick through all the rubbish and they find things that they can use. Food to feed their children and whatever else. Or things that they can um, repurpose. They recycle there. They make stuff. They fix broken stuff and they resell it. They gather tin cans and, and uh, plastic and whatever and paper and they sell it. But the stench of the place is horrific. The cry of the seagulls, horrific. There is a, a heat, a warmth. When you put all that kind of garbage and rubbish together, there's this warmth. I guess it's the methane gas or something, but it's all, there's this warmth. You feel it on your feet, you feel it in your body. It clings to you. 
And ordinarily, the body of Jesus would have been deposited in this valley of Gehenna. It would have just been abandoned there as refuge and rubbish, unwanted. But instead, God, by an act of his providence, by supernatural hand handling, that's not what I meant, working, God is manipulating and steering events even in the midst of this terrible tragedy that Jesus might be cared for, that his body might be cared for. How amazing and wonderful is that? And it is again a comfort to his mother that his, her son isn't just simply being abandoned and thrown to the dogs to eat, to be burnt by untouchable lepers or whatever they were. God is caring and protecting and moving. We're reminded greatly of Romans 8. All things work together for the good. All things. How many things? Some things. The good things. Some of the bad things. All things work together. The highs and the lows. The positives and the negatives. The victories and the tragedies. All things work together. God is active and involved in the lives of his people. He's steering events and manipulating history to fulfill his purposes. We see that in the life of Jesus. We see that here in this circus where they take down that body and they wrap it up and they deposit it. It should be a great comfort to you and I. That even in the midst of the tragedies of this life, even in the midst of the unrighteous acts of others, where we are the victim, God is still sovereign in that circumstance. Do I need to remind you of Jonah? Couldn't remember his name. I was going to say Noah there. Jonah? Do you remember Jonah, the preacher whom God had sent to preach against the city of Nineveh? And he refused. I'm not going there, Lord. No, no, I'm not. And he jumped on a ship and he thought, I'll head off to Spain. I'll go off to Spain and hide from God. He can't send me there. But we know the story, don't we? All, everyone knows the story. It's a Sunday school story. God sent a terrible storm. So, so bad so that the boat was going to be swamped and the sailors in the boat knew that something was wrong so they took all the, the goods and they threw them overboard to try and lighten the ship. The kind of sacrifice to the sea gods. But that didn't help. And so they cast lots to see whose fault is this? And the lot fell to, to, to Jonah. And he confessed. He says, yeah, it's my fault. Pick me up, throw me overboard. I think even before he finished saying that, they were, they were, as he hits the water, the storm ceases. And the Bible says that God had prepared a great fish. Not a big fish, a great fish, which swallowed him up. Not a whale. People think it was a whale. It wasn't a whale. 
There's a word for whale and there's a word for fish. And this was a word for fish. God had prepared a great fish. It didn't just manifest. It didn't just go bloop from nothing. It didn't just speak the word and all of a sudden a great fish appeared from nowhere. God had cared and nourished and prepared for years and years and years. God knew years in advance what was going to happen and where it was going to happen. And he had the circumstances worked out. Think of that great ocean, the Mediterranean Ocean, or sea, sorry. And they were in the middle of a storm and the boat was being pushed this way and that way and they had no idea where they were. But God knew where they were. And God had the great fish there right as they threw him overboard and whoop. I love to fish. You, you, some of you know that I love to fish. I'm not a very good fisherman, sadly. But I love to fish. And I love to watch fishing videos on YouTube. As well as jiu-jitsu. As well as other stuff. And one of the things I love is when you see this fish coming up out of the water. And just... Just... Loudmouth bass. Just comes out of the water like really... And it's mouth just covers the lure and it's just amazing to see these big fish coming out of the water with their mouths floop. I imagine that as they threw Jonah in the water this big fish went and took him. But the remarkable thing isn't that it just ate him, swallowed him. It is that the fish then swam up the coast and vomited him out on the shore so that he could walk across the land to the city of Nineveh. God was in control there. God had prepared the circumstances. God had in his providence provided all the agents needed in that drama. And as God was in control in Jonah's day and in Jonah's circumstances, so he was so in Jesus' circumstances. Remember that Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days. Remember Jesus said, no sign shall be given to Israel except the sign of Jonah. God is at work. Even in the death, even in the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not an accident. It was not a coincidence. It was not a coincidence that this man had moved from Arimathea to Jerusalem. That this man had been elevated to the council. It wasn't an accident. A coincidence that he had become a believer even in secret of Jesus. It wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't an accident that when Christ died and his body was hung on that cross that this man went to Pilate and petitioned that he might take the body of Jesus for burial. That was God working in the circumstances. That was God Preparing, providing for his people in the midst of sorrow, there was comfort. In the midst of tragedy, there was a triumph. How comforting it is it is it for us as believers to know that even in the hardest of our circumstances, even In the greatest of our tragedies, Jesus Christ is still there. That God is still there. 
that He is providing us a way out. That He is comforting us in our circumstances. We might not see it. We might not feel it. We might not know it. But in time, when we look back, we shall see. I, I don't know if you've ever heard it. In English, there's this, this Christian poem story. You might see it on a meme or uh, in my days, because I'm so old, boys and girls. Um, it used to be on bookmarks. We used to have bookmarks. People used to have bookmarks in their Bibles. Not so often these days, but people used to have bookmarks. Susanna has a ministry of bookmarks. If you ever want bookmarks, Susanna will make you bookmarks. And uh, it used to have the, the, foot, the footprints in the sand. Have you ever heard of that? The footprints in the sand, you know? People walking along the shore with Jesus. As Lord, in the hardest parts of my life, I look back and there were only one set of footprints. Where did you go? Why did you leave me? Lord, why did I have to face that hardship by myself? And the Lord looks and says, you're daft. Don't you understand that I was carrying you throughout that sort? You weren't on your own, you were being carried. And that's a little bit cheesy, a little bit corny, but it's true. You're never alone and you're never abandoned. My life verse, Hebrews 13, I guess verse 5, I say that and then I can't remember what the verse was. I shall never leave you nor forsake you. I shall never leave you or forsake you, says the Lord. I love that. That, that keeps me. In the hardest and the most difficult, when people are nasty and horrible and say bad things about me, whenever people abandon me or stab me in the back, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He is always with me. He can never abandon me. He can never be unfaithful. He has made a commitment, a promise, a contract. He will never leave me or forsake me. Isn't it wonderful? Think, reflect over your life and over the circumstances that you've lived through and the story that you have gone through. The journey that has brought you here. God has been in that circumstance every step of the way. In every circumstance, the highs and the lows. Though we may not see it, we may not know it, God has his people in the right place at the right time to do the right thing. Don't worry about whether the unjust and the unrighteous and the wicked will ever receive their up comments, their, their penance, their, their reward in this life. Crooked politicians, they might get away with their crookedness in this life, but one day they must stand before the judge of all the earth. One day they must give an account of their lives and there will be no getting away with it then. There will be no manipulation of the system then because our God rules with an iron scepter and his word is law. The Bible portrays him as a, uh, with a sword coming out of his mouth. Meaning, with one word from him and you're dead. He has the words, the, the ability to decide life and death over a person. 
Let us not be so dismayed by the unrighteousness of people, by the injustice of life. But let us look unto our Savior. Let us rejoice in the fact that we know that He is never going to leave us, never going to forsake us, that all the way my Savior leads me. On every winding path, Beloved, let us take comfort in that. In this story about the burial of Jesus Christ, there is such an abundance of lessons for us to learn. Such a richness when it comes to the displaying of God's power in providence, of His sovereign nation, of His Ability to decide and manipulate and to dictate events nationally, locally, publicly, privately. God is in control. Even when the world rejoices and says, hey, we won. We put the Christians in prison. We removed their buildings. Think of the, the, the... Five pastors in Canada who are still in prison because they refuse to stop meeting together. Not the pastors meeting together, but they're meeting together with their churches. The Canadian government imprisoned them as lawbreakers, as, as terrorists almost, held without trial, held without charges. God is in that. God is in that. And surely we, we, we should still pray for them and still petition our governments and our peoples to, to set people free. Paul a petitioned to Caesar when he was in prison. They said that they let him go. And he said, no, I petitioned to Caesar. And they sent him up the, the, into the, uh, the higher courts, to the highest court in the empire. But we should never be afraid that God has lost control. We should never be so small as to look at the circumstances and think, oh my goodness, I don't know how we're going to get out of that. Far too much, far too often, our worries, stresses and strains in this life come from a low view of God. Do you remember Jesus when he said, you said at this mountain it should be pulled up by the roots and cast into the sea, it shall be done. He wasn't talking about physical mountains. Please don't walk around in Finland pulling up our mountains. We have very few mountains here, but I like them, so leave them alone. He wasn't talking about the physical mountains, but the circumstances of our lives. Circumstances of our lives. That we with faith can look at those mountains before us and say, mountain, you have no purchase, no ability to defeat me. And God in his greatness can take that mountain that is before you and level it. Set you on a straight path. Beloved, have comfort, have strength, be confident in your life that your 
Lord has watched over you from before you were born. He has guided your steps, led you as a shepherd leads sheep. He has allowed things to happen to you and move you indeed that you might be sifted or tried, gone through the fiery furnace so that you might be refined, that you might be sanctified, that you might learn to trust him more, to appreciate him, that you might glorify him by your stand and by your obedience. Why? So that he might be glorified, that he might be exalted, that the benefit of the, his glorification is the salvation of others. God is glorified when people are, I going to say sanctified, but yes, when people come to salvation and God uses you and I and our circumstances and the circumstances of our lives and him being involved in our lives. That's why he answers prayer. God provides circumstances in your life that you must pray through, that you must turn to him and say, God, there is something in my life, a mountain that I cannot get over, get through, get past. Help me. And therefore God answers our prayers and therefore God is glorified because everyone sees that God has done something. It is him who answers prayer. Not by the arm of the flesh, not by our own abilities, but supernaturally out of our control, God steps in. Think of Jesus upon the cross. Who, who else was there being able to say, give me the body of Jesus? If you and I, if we had been there and we went up to the Roman soldiers and said to the Roman soldiers, give me the body of Jesus, they'd be looking at you going, what? Say who? You're with this guy? Mm, jail. Pilate, a man bitterly against Israel, a man who wasn't a good, good fella. And yet God had this man, Joseph of Arimathea, as a member of the council, one of the two, the only two that we know, that hadn't turned against Jesus. He wasn't neutral. He wasn't apathetic. He wasn't, I don't care what happens to Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus. Think about that. Even in this body of men who hated Jesus, God still had his people. There was still a remnant there to defend his interests. I want you to understand that our God is sovereign. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he still is dictating history. Still dictating the circumstances. Internationally, nationally, locally and privately. Our God is in control. And nothing is outside his influence. I wish you would have a greater view of God. I want you to have a greater view of God. To understand that he is in your life and he will never leave you or forsake you. That he is actively working on your behalf. He's not just like this parent going, I don't care what you do. Do whatever you want to do. He's active in your life. 
caring for you, providing for you, leading you, even though you might not know. Have a greater view of God. Have an understanding of the glory and the wonder and the marvelousness of providence. Think again this man, Joseph of Arimathea. Can you imagine Jesus' mother and followers standing there watching from afar off going, how are we going to get him down? Are they going to leave him up there for days and days for the birds to peck out his eyes and his guts to fall out of his stomach? How are we, what are we going to do? How are we going to, who can we speak to? There's nobody we know. We're not from here. We have no friends. What are we going to do? And yet in steps God with this man, the stranger, rescues the body of Jesus and preserves it in a tomb. A new tune. How wonderful. How marvelous. How excellent is our God. So beloved, you in your circumstance, you may not suffer as Christ suffered. You may never be unjustly tried and murdered. But you may face hardship and difficulty. Confusion. You may face some kind of rejection, some kind of bitterness, some kind of negativeness in your life. You may feel alone. You may feel abandoned. You may feel defeated. You may view the whole circumstance as a tragedy. But I want to encourage you to understand that even there in the depths of despair, even there in the height of confusion, even there as you feel lonely, Christ, our God, is there with you. This is Friday, but Sunday is coming. You may be in the darkness of the circumstances, but let me tell you that there is a relief coming. God will deliver you. He will make all the circumstances come together. Hi, I cannot say. By whom? I cannot say. But it's exciting to find out, isn't it? It's exciting to find out. How will God deliver me from this? You know, some of these, you know that a few years ago we went through a trial and, and we were held and stuff was going on. And uh, people would say to me, are you not worried? Are you not worried? And, and I would say, well, I can't be. Why? Because I believe God is sovereign even in this. And he will deliver me. Oh. I remember my lawyer saying to me, mm, it's not looking good. And I was like, don't worry, we've got help. Don't worry, we've got help. We've got God on our side. And she's an unbeliever and she kind of went, yeah, I've heard that one before. After the trial, we came out and she, she came up to me and put her hand on my, my arm and said, we had help. We had help. She said, I, I, if you ever wanted to point at a miracle, that would be it. The prosecutor came. She came up and she put her hand on my other arm and went, that was really good. You had help. The woman who was trying to sentence us for an unjust crime. Beloved, you may not understand 
where help will come from, but God will help you and God will be glorified and God will be exalted. Be confident in Him and in His ability to glorify you and to exalt you. Not to exalt you, but to lift you up. Jesus was cared for in death. He was confident that his body would not see decay. Because he knew the words of scripture. And he knew the character of his father. And he bravely endured the cross. Because he knew that resurrection was coming. And again, I would have you understand and know the character of our God. That he will deliver you. And he will raise you up. Be confident in him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would ask you to help us. Lord, as we see the circumstances of your burial. Lord, and all the moving parts. Lord, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, the stranger. This rich man, this wealthy Lord, counselor, leader of Israel. This secret follower of yours. But Lord, when the time came, he stepped up and stepped out into the light and proclaimed his believing in you by his actions. Lord, we thank you that we see that you are always active, that you are never neglectful, that you are never away on a journey or asleep at the wheel. Lord, you're always involved in our circumstances. Lord, when we look at the circumstances of the world in which we live, Lord, with all of the the corona things, Lord, with all of the world governments and the, the falling and rising of nations, Lord, with the instabilities of this time, we are glad that we may say that we know that our God is in control, that he is bringing all the nations under his feet, that he might use them as a footstool. We are grateful, Lord, that we know that one day you will return and we wait for it with expectancy. Lord, we are so grateful. Lord, we pray that you will help us to increase in our view of you. That, Lord, that we shall be encouraged in our day-to-day life. That those things that would intimidate us and make us afraid would vanish. Because we know that you stand with us. Lord, we know that we are as little children full of fear. Full of, Lord, uncertainty, unstableness. But Lord, we know that when you, our parents, stand with us, we can be confident in you. That you will protect us and provide for us and care for us. We may not know where help comes from. We may not know how it will be delivered. But we know you. We know that you love us. And that you will care for us. And that you will provide for us. And you will let no harm come to us. Because you are who you are. Lord, we are truly grateful in that. Father, we pray for those who do not know you. Who cannot say with certainty that you are in their life. That you care for them as you care for us. Please, Lord, draw them into right relationship with yourself. Let them see the nature of their sin. And of the hatefulness of their rebellion. Of their denying you and your great love. Of the rejection of you. Oh God, I pray that you would 
Convince them of your righteousness, of your great love, of your great protective nature. Lord, of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that you gave on behalf of all those who would believe. Oh God, we pray for them. Lord, that you would move in them and that you would convert them. Lord, that you would transform them and change them. That you would enable them to believe in order that they would repent of their sins and follow you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray this for your glory. Your glory and your glory alone, Lord. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.